Heavenly Father, we're grateful today that you love us, that you lead us, that you give us, Lord, um, your love and concern over our lives. Lord, there's nothing that we go through that you aren't a part of helping us in. Uh, we, we never, Lord, are far from your reach. You, you reach right down to us. We're going to talk about that a little bit today. So, Father, I pray that, um, that your will and your way would be evident in the lives that we lead. Lord, there are lots of things that, that we don't understand about this life. Uh, some things that we mentioned even today are things that we just don't really quite get. But occasionally, you will pull the curtain back a little bit and show us how you are at work. We're so grateful for that. I'm grateful today, Lord, that we can come together on this week and at the beginning of this uh, uh, holiday week and know that, uh, Lord, you're going to be with us, that, Lord, you were going to give us um, uh, your strength to guide us. Lord, we just want to spend this entire week, as we should spend every day, giving you thanks for your care and your watchful protection over our lives. So we'll start this week in that way. We ask you to guide us as we study. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. Uh, I want you to go with me to Revelation 21. And again, I say happy Thanksgiving. Uh, I've got it all, we've got it all kind of figured out at our house. How many of you are traveling this week? Quite a few of you. Okay. Be careful. We want you to come back. And uh, we will not be traveling. We've got some family coming here. And I've asked Rhonda to stuff the turkey with Prozac. So, um, should I not? Did I say that out loud? Okay. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, I read read this week that somebody said, I never understood why the Lions, I love football on Thanksgiving. I never understood why the Lions and the Cowboys always get to play on Thanksgiving. Shouldn't the Patriots play the Redskins and then steal their stadium? That, that was a pretty good, but anyway. Uh, Ellie told me one this morning that's not repeatable, so I won't, I won't go with that one. And uh, anyway, um, <laughs> let, let me give you a little bit of background. We're going to spend two weeks, really, in this study that we've been doing. We've been really uh, spending some time dealing with the sovereignty of God in terms of uh, the sovereignty of God the Father. We spent a few weeks in <clears throat> I'm sorry, in the, in the Old, Old Testament book of Isaiah, talking about the sovereignty of God the Father. And then we spent several weeks in the book of Hebrews, which I just always enjoy journeying through Hebrews, talking about Jesus as our high priest, uh, the, his sovereignty there. Well, so at the end of this, we're going to kind of tie it up with a bow, talking about um, kind of God and Jesus as the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning of the end. And so we'll spend this week and next week uh, kind of on that. And so, if you will uh, go with me to 21, let me give you a little bit of background. Um, you know, Oklahoma City is a really great place to live, I think. What do you think? Isn't it true that there are several Oklahoma cities? I mean, it's kind of like most cities. While um, Oklahoma City's home to a lot of strong churches and many faithful Christians. It's also home to social problems. Um, we've got our own kind of 
gang issues. If you, if you read the news and uh, we read about prostitution and homelessness and drugs and human trafficking and those things right here in our little town. That's always kind of been startling to me that right here in the buckle of the Bible belt, we can have to deal with those same things. Um, or someone to establish a new city that just had the good parts, I'm going to tell you, it probably wouldn't stay that way for very long. Because um, things have a tendency not to get better, but to get worse. Now, we're going to talk today and next week about literally a perfect place a perfect city. And we're going to talk about why it's a perfect place and a perfect city. Let me give you just a little bit of a background on the book of Revelation. And by the way, it's not Revelations with an S. It's the Revelation, okay? Um, it's probably, many think at least, that the last book of the New Testament to be written, somewhere really around 96 or 100 A.D. was written. It was... Um, uh, during the final year of, Domitian, of uh, Roman Emperor Domitian's 15-year reign, and it was the year that he was assassinated, believe it or not. John, the writer, who was St. John the Divine, it was the, he was the uh, kind of the one who called himself the, the disciple Jesus loved. Um, the book of Revelation has about three parts. Um, <clears throat> the, we will only study the last part, but the first chapter or so relates an appearance of, of the risen Christ to John on the island of Patmos. The second part of the book consists of personal messages to churches that are kind of in the region. And, uh, and we sometimes refer to those as the letters to the seven churches. And then chapters four on to the end, chapter 22, is John's record of the series of visions he experiences. Um, there are visions of heaven and its activities, along with prophetic words about the future. And uh, John is given these by angels who serve as his guide, and he hears the voice of God. It's, it's just a fantastic, fantastic book. And yet, sometimes it has been the subject of all kinds of, of uh, misunderstanding. The book of Revelation features a type of literature known as apocalypse. Now, the word apocalypse now in modern literature has come to know, be known as kind of a worldwide catastrophe. But that's really not the biblical context. Um, uh, this book reveals literally the, the idea of apocalypse is what is hidden, is now going to be revealed. And so the book of Revelation reveals kind of the hidden workings of God and the plans of the Lord God Almighty at a time when the people in the church, the people of faith, were going through a really, really terrible, terrible experience. Their tribulations were to give way to the hope that persecution would someday come to an end. And it's been serving that purpose, this book, for nearly 2,000 years now, showing readers that evil is not going to triumph. So can you remember that little tag? Evil will not triumph until the end. We're reading the end of the story. Now, here's what I want us to do. Uh, what I think I'm going to do is, you know, I can't find you anymore. I can't find you. I need you to scoot up to me when you get here because I just can't find you. I'm going to pick on somebody real quick that I can, can find, okay? Sally, can I ask you to go to 21, and I'm going to ask you to read the first four verses. I'm going to hand you this mic 
and I'm going to put this other mic on, okay? Can we do that? The New Jerusalem. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with me, with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. You know, we've talked in the past about new things, about God recreating us. You remember the last series we did, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, every week. You want to try it again? If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Well, this is certainly an indication of that here. Uh, the idea that the old order of things have passed away. Now, if you remember, if you remember, the Bible begins in Genesis 1-1 with the story of God creating the earth and the universe and all that's within it. And he calls it really good. But it didn't stay good for long because of the introduction of sin by, by chapter 2 and 3. Now, what we're going to deal with here, uh, what, what the Bible is talking about here in verse 1 and following, uh, here of Revelation 21, is kind of, uh, you and I have a thought in, in modern culture because we watch all these do-it-yourself network shows. You watch those? The default channel at my house for this one is the DIY channel. So you guys get the DIY channel? When I come in, it's, it's not on Lifetime, it's not on Hallmark, it's on DIY, which miss, must mean that she thinks I'm not capable of getting those things done. I, do, I, I don't know. But it, it, it makes me nervous because it's like, what's the newest project and what is it going to cost me? So the DIY channel's on there. And um, there is a show that, that she particularly loves, a lot of you might love too, um, featuring these two, two Baylor grads in Waco, and, they're, and it's called Fixer Upper, right? It, have you done Fixer Upper? The, uh, it's just really good. And, and uh, I really like the two kids that run it and their little family, and uh, they kind of pull you into the story. I, I'm quite certain that the house they buy for $22,000 and are able to put $70,000 really costs a million and a half But by the time they're done. But, but it's the idea of fixer-upper. What, what we're dealing with in the story of Revelation, in God's recreating of things, we've talked about that a lot. It, what I want you to understand, and here's the word that goes in your blank, this work that God is getting ready to do is not simply a makeover. It's a complete redo. This world is not a fixer-upper. There's not enough good left in it in, in many ways to just fix it up. Uh, and it's understood in, um, in the context of the Genesis story we kind of get this idea. Now, 
there is a concept that's, that's presented here in verse 1 of chapter 21 that I want to be sure we catch, okay? Um, it says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And what you need to understand is that this one won't be there, okay? In fact, if you read Peter's writing in his letters, you're going to discover that this letter, this world will go away. There's going to be a new one. And so John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first one had passed away. And there's a new order of things. And he's going to say something really kind of hard to understand. And even in my study this week, I, I read several different things. But I'm going to tell, can I tell you what it really means? He says, there is no more sea. Now, one of the commentators I read this week wrote some stuff that's really true, and he talked about the fact that, that the sea has always been a place of mystery for mankind, a powerful, hostile environment, the sea. Uh, when I want to get uh, really kind of overwhelmed about the power of creation, I will watch a National Geographic uh, special on the ocean or the sea. Um, during the football game yesterday, I was watching, and they, um, what is it, Pacific Life that always comes on, and they've got the whales jumping. Can I tell you something? I don't want to see that firsthand. That's just too awesome for me. I, I, literally, it's almost scary for me to watch, because I think about the depth of the sea that it has to be in order for these whales to be hopping around in it. Um, I remember Herb Collier went fishing in Canada and um, um, he would talk about they were in a small boat in some sound fishing, and um, they looked over, and there's a whale over here, and I'm thinking, I don't want to see that unless I'm on an aircraft carrier, certainly not in a fishing boat, okay? The sea is kind of awesome. Now, one of these commentators I wrote said, okay, the sea will go away. Some of that hostility will go away. I don't think that's what John's saying. The idea of a sea in Scripture here is the idea of a gap, a gulf. And what it's going to say, the idea, and we'll see it in verse 2, that the gap between man and God, the gap between you and me and heaven will go away. The sea, the gap between will go away. But it's not talking here, again, about a fixer-upper. We were uh, going to the store last night, and uh, I turned the corner going north on uh, uh, Rockwell at Hefner, and all of a sudden, Brahms is gone. You guys live in my area? Have you noticed that? Brahms is just gone. Was, there, was that what the earthquake did? I, The cows, the cows revolted, okay. Uh, <clears throat> what I think is going to take place, because I, I didn't notice it until I, I just looked over there and thought, Where? that was kind of a nasty Brahms. I don't know if you ever, okay. Okay, if you work there or if, if that's your favorite place, I'm sorry, but it was kind of a nasty, you know, they're just kind of, some of those that are really old and just kind of nasty. What my guess is, is even maybe on that site, uh, down south by where I work, I noticed they, they took one down and put one up 
around the corner. But what I'm loving here is the possibility that they leveled that one and they're going to put up a brand new one in its place. Is that what they're doing? Okay. Thanks for setting my heart at ease. That's better. Okay. The nasty will now become clean. I'm hoping they don't use the same old grill that they used to use, you know? Isn't it wonderful when we see something where the old wasn't just remodeled, it became new. The Bible says this place is going to be brand new. This one won't be here anymore. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth, and the gap will go away. Look at uh, 21.10. Sally, you may, you'll either have to be our reader today or you're going to have to pass the mic around, okay? Will that work? Would you read 21.10? And he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Now, it's interesting because when I read other places, okay, like listen to Isaiah 2, verse 3. Isaiah 2, verse 3, they were longing to do something here. It's going to say, many peoples will come and say, come let us go up to the mountain of God, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways, and that we walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion, the word from the Lord from Jerusalem. So they're thinking about when they said, let's go up to Jerusalem. Okay, it's kind of a, a common thought here. But what we've got and what you need to put in your blanks there is that in that day, we will no longer have to go up to this holy place. Um. Listen to 61.10 out of Isaiah. I love the 61st chapter anyway, because Jesus liked it. But here's what 61.10 says. I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness. Here we go. As a bridegroom decks himself with a garland, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. So that there's a common thought here. I, I like the thought of a bridegroom being decked. I went to a wedding yesterday, and, and I didn't say it to the groom, but I could have said it to the groom. Man, you're really decked out. You're, there's that Old Testament idea. But in particular, you and I have seen it, how the bride will spend hours and hours and really months of preparation so that she will look really, really good on the wedding day. And I was sitting with my daughter, that was friends of hers and ours, and um, Heather was uh, saying to me, I can't wait to see Alan's face when Sarah walks in the room. Because she was the bride prepared for the groom. And uh, by the way, that's always the money shot. It's just what, uh, you kind of don't even want to look back at the bride because you just want to see what, he, what his face looks like. And it's just so wonderful. A bride adorned for her husband's use. Now, the idea here is, if you'll catch this, you remember I said there is no more sea. There's no more separation in verse 1. So, heaven and earth are together here in verse 2. 
This is not a remodeled Jerusalem that's being talked about in verse 2. This is not, uh, you know, there's a lot of ruins over there. Let's fix it all up. Let's get it ready to go. It's not talking about that at all. In fact, it's not talking about Jerusalem in Palestine at all. This city will come down. We won't have to go up to it. That's what goes in your blanks there, go up. We won't have to go up anymore. The people to whom this was originally promised, who dreamed of going up to Jerusalem, won't have to do that anymore. The idea is that this city will come down to us, this holy city, like a bride adorned for her husband. Now, if I use, kind of combine all those metaphors, a holy city, a bride, the bride of Christ, the new Jerusalem, the picture I get, or the metaphor that I get, is of the church preparing for the second coming of Jesus. Has nothing to do with Jerusalem at all in terms of geography. Be careful if somebody tells you that they're waiting for something to happen in Jerusalem for this to happen. Because the imagery here is not about that. It's about the church preparing like a bride for the return of Jesus, the groom. And the idea is still conveyed here in verse 2, that there is no sea, no distinction, no separation. Now, look at verse 3. I'm going to read it again. And I want to ask you, what is the most important feature of uh, this kind of picture to you? Here we go. Uh, verse 3, and I heard a loud voice from the throne. By the way, this is not God's voice because he's calling out things about God, right? I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be among them. Now, um, my, my question is here, what's the most important feature of what's going to happen in this uh, new uh, place or this new city. Now, uh, it uses the tabernacle of God here. Don't get hung up on that. It's basically the idea of God's dwelling place throughout um, their Old Testament wanderings was, was this portable sanctuary, then became more permanent with the building of the Temple of Solomon and other temples that followed it in Jerusalem. Don't get so hung up with that that you miss here that the idea of the tabernacle that's mentioned here is God's dwelling place. Now, and it mentions several things that are going to happen when that tabernacle is with men. What's the most important of those to you as you read those? It's got to be, Cindy, that God is with us. Now, it mentions here... Um, the, um, uh, it, it, a future time when there's this perfect fellowship um, here. It mentions um, um, kind of the structure here. Um, uh, we will be his people. God himself will be with us. It's going to go on to talk about God wiping every tear away. We're going we're to talk about that in a minute. Uh, look over with me at 7-9. So go back. Just a few pages, 7-9. Sally, you mind to read that one to us? Just back three or four pages to the left. 
After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. Oh, I read Now the picture, there's a couple of places here in this book where John will be led to the throne room of God, and around the throne room, there are multitudes and multitudes and multitudes of people praising God. There is a picture in, uh, in, in if you'll go toward the end of 21, where um, uh, the Bible is describing the size of heaven, the New Jerusalem, and uh, it seems pretty vast, and the group there is pretty vast. So it, the truth is here, that one of the things that would be promising is that there will be a lot of people there uh, that, um, that the old things have kind of um, gone away, but there's all these people there praising God, and we're going to be among that group. But the, isn't it true that the most striking and the most promising picture here is that when we get there, when this happens, God will be with us, walking among us. His throne room will be among the people of God. This absolute, wonderful, uh, and eternal picture. Now, verse 4 is a very, very important verse for most of us. The idea is that the old order of things will be forever gone in verse 4. Okay? We've said that a couple of times here. The old, the first order of things have passed away, it says here in verse 4. And there's some different features here to that. What you need to understand, or I think what I need to recognize here, is that the main thing that's going to go away, and I'm going to pick on at least one of you. Larry, can I pick on you for a minute? Okay. You know, isn't it bad that I ask you permission? And if you said no, I was going to do it anyway. Sorry. The, <laughs> the old order of things is going away, and the, and the main feature I want you to know of that's going to go away is death. Okay, now here's how I'm going to relate that to Larry's story. A few weeks ago when Larry had a tumor removed, we hoped that would be the end of it. And now I really believe it may be the end of it. And we're going to hope for that. But what scared us was the C word. Because anytime, and so many of you have been touched by this in your families or in your life. Julie, how many times? And with Roger. Yeah. So five times among two people right here. When we hear that, it scares us because we believe that often cancer means death. What would it be like if death were taken out of the equation? What would it be like if death were taken out of the equation? Do you realize how many of our day-to-day of our -day fears would go away? For crying out loud, I'd be able to ride roller coasters I always have thought that I'm going to die on a roller coaster, so I won't get on one, you know. Scares those, you know. I would go back to riding motorcycles, Bill, because I'm no longer afraid I'm going to be splattered on I-40 like I almost, almost happened to me four or five years ago, okay? If I weren't afraid of death, how would my life change? If I weren't afraid of death visiting my loved ones, how would my life change? Verse 5 and read down through 8. 
He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost from the spring of the water of life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Okay, now, God is promising John's readers a new reality. You can put that word in your first blank there. He's promising for us and for them a better future. And he says, as he begins to hear a new voice here, he says, this, the new voice says, this is important. How does he convey to John that this is important? Write it down. He said, my guess is, John has been writing all these visions down, and he gets to a point that something's just so fantastic that it forgets to write. And so God himself says, okay, buddy, uh, come back to the task. Write this down. You don't want to forget it. And there's some people in Oklahoma City in 2016, they're going to need to hear about it. So write this down. It's so, it's that vitally important. He promises us a better future. Now, uh, the word that is used here, the, the words that are used in five and six, are, they're these two Greek words that are left untranslated in the scriptures in verse six. I am the alpha and the omega. This is a direct quote from, from God himself. I am the alpha and the omega. You and I know it's the, the, the first letter and the last letter in the uh, Greek alphabet. And so the idea might be there that he's saying to you and I that I was there at the beginning, alpha, and I'm gonna be there at the end, omega, and uh, kind of giving us this idea of a new future. You know, new has a tendency to get old. That's why I have visited Larry Harris's office so many times over the last 10 or 12 years. My newer car has gotten old. I used to accuse my dad of wanting to trade cars when this one got dirty. New has a tendency to get old. Can I give you some promise? Not there. New will stay new. That's why I say better than new here on this outline. New will stay new. Uh, it, it's, it's unfathomable for us. All is new and perfect and doesn't corrupt. Why? Because the Bible says even here in this chapter, there will be no corruptive nature of sin there. It won't be allowed. So, nothing sinful or corrupting will be there. Now, in, in, in the last part of verse 6, you'll recognize kind of this language, I think. He says, I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. I referenced, we won't have time to look there, but I referenced uh, right there, Isaiah 55, 1, where he uses the word, ho, everyone who is thirsty. 
Oh, everyone who is thirsty. I, and he uses the same language here, similar language where he says, I'm going to give you a drink that you don't understand, and, and it will come without cost. There is no spiritual thirst there. Jesus said in, his, in the greatest sermon ever uh, preached, he said, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they will what? be filled. The word is kind of satisfied. The word I want you to put in your blank is the word quenching. I don't know if I made up a new word there or not, but I'm going to use it anyway. Quenching. There will be a quenching or a satisfaction. No spiritual thirst there. Jesus says, you're going to be satisfied. Now, realize that his original readers had read that they had been given a permission to eat from the tree of life in Revelation 2.7, immunity from the second death in Revelation 2 verse 11. They've been given a new name in 2.17. They've been promised an authority to rule the nations in uh, 2.26. They've been promised in, verse, in chapter 3 in verse 5, a white robe, a part in the new city, Jerusalem, in 3.12. Even an invitation to share the great throne of authority in 3.21. But all of those are summed up in this verse before us. When he says um, this, I am making things new. And in verse 7, he says, if you overcome, and that's what goes in the blank there, we who overcome are promised all of this. All those things that he's promised will come about, he says. And to wrap it up, he says, basically first, verse 8 is saying, the, that the picture here is one of a cosmic house cleaning. It's kind of hard and harsh. I won't get into what all these groups are being talked to, but I just want you to understand that there will be a house cleaning. What will the fate of all these groups of people be? The Bible says that there will be some who will be cut off and there will be a way from God and his people because of the way they chose to live in this life. So I just want to kind of, kind of bring this to some kind of close here in the final uh, three or four minutes of our time together. Then if this is all true for them, and we're, and we're saying that we're closer to the realization of this 2,000 years later than they even were, then what is our response to all this to be? What about these promises? Well, I think first... If you look at verse 5, it talks about God being the one, the one who is faithful and true. What I want to say to you is this. I can trust in the one who is always true. You can put the word true there. I can trust in the one, end to end, who is always true. I don't have to wonder if he's going to be honest with me. I don't have to wonder if he's telling the truth. I don't have to wonder, certainly, if he knows right from wrong or knows what's good and what's bad or knows what's going to happen. I can trust in the one who is always true. And so I need to place my faith in the only one who is true. He's called here the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He was there at the beginning. He'll be there at the end. And then secondly, I, I think this, the second thing I've got, I've got to realize is I kind of think about eternity in these terms. This is not just for me at the end of my life. 
Uh, I use a lot of these scriptures, especially verse 4, in, in funeral services. But this is not just for uh, a time at the end of my life. This is for me now. What I want to do is commit to living an eternal quality of life now. Let me leave you with some words of A.W. Tozer. If you've never read Tozer, um, you can't read it while you're watching a football game. It's not possible. I mean, you can read it, but you won't get it. It'll be like, what was that? No, you got to go back because it's a little thick. But it's wonderfully applicational. Uh, Tozer was a Christian uh, Missionary Alliance editor of their, uh, editor of their uh, church magazine and uh, writes all these essays about Christian living. And they're, they're just absolutely incredible. If you like reading C.S. Lewis, I think you'll like Tozer. Tozer writes a book called uh, That Incredible Christian in where he talks about the marks of a spiritual man. Now, ladies, this doesn't mean you're left out, okay? It's just the way he, you know, he wrote in the 60s, 1960s, and that's kind of how they wrote then. Uh, Marks of a Spiritual Man. I put these in first person because I wanted to commit myself years ago to living them out. There's seven of them. If I'm to be a truly spiritual man, the following characteristics must be present in my life. This is an eternal quality of life. Let me, let me give them to you real quickly. Ready? I will desire to be holy rather than happy. I will desire to see the honor of God advance through my life even if I must suffer temporary dishonor or loss. I will desire to carry my cross. I will desire to see everything from God's viewpoint. I will desire to die right rather than to live wrong. I will desire to see others advance at my expense. And the last one is so poignantly appropriate for our discussion today. I will desire to habitually make eternity judgments rather than time judgments. What would it mean to you if over this next Thanksgiving week you committed your life to making eternity judgments, to living an eternal quality of life? I'd love to hear back from you on how that's going to work out in your life it will make a tremendous difference in your level of peace. The new place we're going to will be so much better than this one. I really hesitate anymore to make this one that much more home. Because one of these days, I'll really be home. Happy Thanksgiving. We'll be in chapter 22 next week, and I'll see you here. Thank you.